Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing well-being information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Victoria Bagnall. Victoria is an education professional passionate about improving opportunities for people with executive function challenges. She's the co-founder and managing director of Connections in Mind, an executive functions-focused coaching and training company in London. She's recently launched an online learning platform as part of her Evolving Minds, Evolving Times initiative. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And, and I would like to just say, where are you calling from? <laughs> um, yes, that's a bit of an insight into my life. Yes, I am calling in from Uganda today. It's, it's, um, you can probably hear the background. There's a few crickets and, and frogs. There's a bit of tropical noise in the background. It's, um, it's all natural, I promise. Um, but yes, calling in from Uganda. And, and I... My, my curiosity, and I'm sure our listeners' curiosity, is, is that just where you live now? Is that a place that's home to you? Mm, yes. So we visited here first in 2008 and really fell in love with the country, its people, the climate. And we vowed when we had children, we'd bring them back here for an upbringing that's very different from an upbringing in the UK. Um, and we'll kind of lead on to kind of more of that, I'm sure, later. But yeah. the the development of your executive functions when you're living in a, in a country like um, Uganda is, is a lot more pronounced because children just need to be so much more independent and, and more adult in their, their behaviours. So it's a great place to, to nourish young human spirits. Wow, wow. And I definitely will come back and ask you about the differences. Um, that's a, that's mm. a fascinating point to start with. But um, I think a really good starting point is if you could just define for people who might not know or might have, you know, just have a vague idea what you mean when you talk about executive functions. Brilliant. So executive functions are brain processes. They're core brain processes that help us to regulate our emotions, to organize our time, to organize our thoughts, and really just to do those kind of advanced human activities that we need so much in society to um, be able to participate in, in the modern world. And could you break that down then into the core aspects of, of executive function. Yes, absolutely. So there's the three core aspects of executive functioning. So there is inhibitory control, which is our ability to, to stop ourselves from doing something, um, which is really important. Um, and then we have our working memory, which is our ability to hold information in our head. Um, and so being able to hold information in our head, but then also do something with that information. So it's not in our long-term memory, but in our, our working memory. And then finally, it's cognitive flexibility. So that's the ability to shift and change depending on challenges that present themselves to us. Um, so that ability to be flexible, ability to react to change uh, and not to um, be overwhelmed by it. I did the, the quiz that's on your website. <laughs> and I have to say, I was pretty pleased with how I did. Apart from my working memory, got a lower score. And I, and I reflected on that. And it occurred to me that I often work in quite long bursts, like I'll work for a couple of hours at a time, but then I'll have a burst of like an hour or something where I just try and do too much. Mm -hmm. And I answer a whole bunch of emails or I make calls or I send a message to this person. And, and I find by the end of that hour, I am so 
kind of edgy or something mm-hmm. happens to me and I know better, but I still do it. <laughs> There's still those kind of granular things that just need to be done. But by the mm-hmm. end of that hour, I feel really tired from that. Can you talk about how we can kind of harness our executive mm-hmm. function and, and make better use of it? Yes, I think that's such a wonderful reflection. And I think a lot of people will be able to really relate to that. And that's because what's happening in that time when you're shifting and changing and you're using your working memory a lot and you're using your cognitive flexibility to shift from one function to another is that your brain is engaging its executive functions um, a lot more and therefore consuming a lot more glucose in the brain, which means that you will feel tired um, and, and your, your, your brain will, will feel exhausted by doing this. Whereas when you're doing one particular function, you're not engaging your executive function so much. You're, you're using other parts of your brain, which, is, which can be um, less glucose, um, um, what's the word to, to use? Uh, cons- consuming is yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Does that, it, that's interesting because I often do that just before lunch from 12 mm. to 1 is the time that I will often do that kind of hour of, of bitsy kind of work like that. And, um, and I'm usually starving. And I, when you use so much glucose, I wonder literally if, um, I, I don't know, I might be stretching the analogy there, but I, I definitely feel like ravenous. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And it's so important to remember that our executive functions are part of our brain that really work best when we are well rested, when we have eaten well, um, and when we've been doing lots of restorative activities that really kind of restore our energy levels. So maybe going for a walk or doing exercise with friends or just doing those things that really kind of restore us. And, and so if you're doing it just before lunch, you're kind of, it's kind of the double whammy almost in a way is you're doing those kind of high cognitive load activities in that time just when you are your your brain's energy levels are depleting because you haven't eaten recently so I would recommend perhaps thinking about having a little snack or something before you do that um, or, or changing the time so that you can make the best use of your executive functions because that cognitive load is is a real thing and it needs managing it definitely is. It definitely is. I have a sentence written at the top of my to-do list. <laughs> I usually have like a thought or a sentence or something that kind of guides me during the week. And on the top of my to-do list lately, I've had reduce your cognitive load. Literally, I have written that because it's like, ah, I'm doing too many things at once. So I will certainly, certainly take your advice there and do that. Tell me, Victoria, about how you work with people with executive function challenges and even could you define for us what you mean by that so yes so this term executive function challenges comes out of a a disagreement with the term executive function deficits which is the the term that's used a lot in the literature Um, and I think that's because for me I, I disagree with this idea that we're kind of less whole if we have challenges with our executive functions I believe that every single human being on this earth, and the evidence shows that every single human on this earth has a different executive function profile and strengths and challenges in different areas. And that doesn't make us any less human um, just because we have more challenges in some areas than others. So we refer to the people that we work with, with as having executive function challenges, challenges they can overcome, but that takes a lot of effort and persistence and, and support in order to do that. It's not easy to suddenly 
change and be better at your executive functioning even though some people might find these things really simple and easy that doesn't mean it's easy for everyone to change it's just like learning to drive or to ride a bike it takes months and months of repetition and practice and habit forming in order to develop stronger executive functions in our prefrontal cortex so the way that we work with people to do that um, and the, the research has shown the best way to do this is through a coaching approach and that's because coaching does two things first of all the questioning that we use in coaching helps to forge neural neural pathways in the brain so that the person is thinking for themselves about solutions that would work for them rather than being told what to do Um, and there's a lot of research about how questioning is is such a great way of, of developing new thought patterns and new neural pathways so the questioning part of coaching is really important but also the second part is the the support that your coach offers you um, because they really get to know you. They really understand your specific challenges because nobody has the same challenges. If they struggle with their task initiation, for example, the reason behind that can be a myriad of different things. It can be to do with fear of failure. It can be to do with not having the motivation um, to get started. It can be to do with, you know, just, just getting distracted by other things that are going on around us. There's a myriad of different ways that that task initiation can be a challenge for us. So that's why having the supportive person who really gets to know you and the challenges you face and can talk to you about the the particular circumstances in your life and come up with strategies that work for you is important. But then also supporting you in that change is so important because we know that just like learning to ride a bike or, or learning to drive, that it takes a long time to form new habits. But the evidence shows us it takes on average 60 iterations of a new habit before it becomes embedded. And so that's a lot of iterations of something, especially if someone has you know, really struggles with motivation or struggles with attention, then they find that even more difficult. So that's why coaching is such a great approach to, to building these new habits. That's amazing. And so you mentioned a couple of challenges like task initiation. Mm -hmm. What other examples of some challenges? Mm. Absolutely. It's a great question. Um, So when we're thinking about those three brain processes, those are the kind of the brain processes that are happening within the brain. So that's the the working memory, um, the cognitive flexibility um, and the response inhibition. So when they're interacting in real life, they kind of manifest as these 11 um, executive uh, function skills is what we call them. I'm not going to go through all 11 now because it's a bit of a rattling off a list. But if anyone wants to complete our questionnaire, it comes up with your profile. But some examples of those are um, we talked about task initiation but planning and prioritization the ability to to look at your to-do list and work out what needs to be done first and and to plan in that time to do that And, and, and alongside that comes time management the ability to look at a task and say that's going to take me an hour I need to make sure I put aside an hour for that or that's going to take me five hours I need to put aside that time but also punctuality and managing time so that you can be on time to things as well so there's all these different executive functions, and those are three that are kind of very, very linked. Then there's other things like, um, sorry, the executive function skills, I should say. There's other things like emotional control, and that is our ability to um, control our emotional responses to things, um, which comes alongside the response inhibition piece, which is to manage our response to said emotions. And so they're all kind of mixed in together. You can see they're not separate. 
but they they the different profiles that people have present different challenges for them in their their everyday life so it may be that they really struggle with meeting deadlines okay well that would be the time management planning prioritization task initiation piece it may be that they really suffer from uh, low self-confidence so that might be more on the emotional control response inhibition and metacognition piece and that metacognition is your ability to self-evaluate and see yourself from a kind of a helicopter view of how everyone else sees you so you can see they're very it's very complex but it's a great way to kind of pinpoint and put a shiner a laser focus on the challenges that people are facing not just say oh I'm feeling overwhelmed or oh I'm really bad at managing deadlines you know actually working out what is the skill that's missing here that needs to be developed and would you typically work with young people and children or adults or a mix so it's really mixed so when we first set up connections in mind our purpose at that point was to work with young people but then we started talking to their parents um, and because we know that executive function challenges are quite genetic we found that a lot of these parents really needed support too. We were desperate for support. So we developed an adult program too. And now we work with about 50% children, about 50% adults. Um, we also have developed a program for younger children as well, as well which isn't coaching because there's the developmentally, they're not ready for coaching because they haven't got those metacognition skills. Um, but with younger, with younger students, we have a play-based approach where they learn about their executive functions in a play environment and then generalize those skills of, say, packing the ba- a bag to go to the jungle into packing a bag to go to school or go on holiday or something like that. So they're learning these skills in a play-based way, which is engaging and then transferring it to their everyday lives. I want to pick up on what you just said about this being a potential genetic link between parents and children. Mm. And I would wonder, is there also a kind of a modelling link there? That would have been my observation. Mm. And so I think there's a really interesting kind of balance to strike there between genetics and modelling what children are seeing at home, what they see of their parents or family. Absolutely. And the, the, the statistics show it's genetic, but then how do you actually separate out the nature versus the nurture? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really important point is that, yes, there is there can be a genetic predisposition for this. But if you're growing up in a household which is fairly chaotic, of course, you're not going to learn those habits and, and skills that you would do if you were in um, a more routine based um, home and and so you know this this does have an impact and there's been a lot of studies to try and work out the difference it's very difficult to separate the two out um, but the other thing that is really impactful on our executive functions at a formative age is trauma uh, and that's a really interesting part of uh, the whole research that's going on at the moment around executive functioning is they're just not quite sure if it's because you're you're born with these executive function challenges and then you experience everyday trauma within society because you really struggle to manage your time and your emotions and so on and so forth, that that creates more trauma and then really impacts your um, executive function and it's a spiral like that. Or, Or whether it's a traumatic event that might happen at the beginning of somebody's life that would then set off that spiral from happening. They're not sure which bit happens first, but what they're very clear on is that if we have adverse childhood experiences that they can lead on to what we call in the literature executive function deficits but I call challenges um, in the future and it's a cyclical it's a, it's a vicious cycle that, that happens it gets worse and worse as, as life goes on not better and better unfortunately. And do you find that with interventions though that you can turn that trend around? Absolutely and the, the big 
thing that we have when people come to us uh, for support is they have what they uh, say to us is their light bulb moment when all of a sudden when they they learn about executive functions that these are brain processes and the skills are skills that they can learn and develop and yes it takes time and yes it's very hard but they can do it there is this light bulb moment for them that this is not something that's I am not good enough, that I'm a bad person. And it can help them to really reframe their negative self-talk that they have had imposed on them by society that doesn't really understand these challenges and can help them to really think, okay, I can do something about this. I can change. It's going to take time. I'm going to need support, but I can do things differently. Um, And that's such a powerful um, experience that a lot of the people that come to to work with us have and and it changes their lives it's I sound a bit evangelical when I say that but it really does yeah (laughs) Um, no and well it is evangelical because when you change people's life that's an amazing gift to give people and I'm thinking of our listeners listening to this who are educators so teachers or school Mm. leaders and I would imagine or I would even invite you listeners to, to have kind of two ears open to this, what what you can learn from this that you can apply with your um, children and, and young people that you work with, but also for yourself. So how would you kind of open that thinking up, Victoria, for, for want of a better way of asking that question? Yes. Um, so, so the key thing here is really understanding executive function. So we have a free course um, on our website, um, which I'm sure you're going to share with people after this, that is an introduction to executive functions. So getting to know what they are is really important. Um, we also offer, offer training to, to have a more of a depth. Um, understanding of that if you're if you're interested so we really set up that free course as an intro to to get those people who are interested to learn more so really understanding that these challenges that your young people are facing in your classroom is not to do with a character flaw that shame and punishment will not be the answer to helping them to develop these skills that just like learning to ride a bike just like learning to speak french just like learning to put together a, a sentence that makes sense that we need to scaffold these young people to develop those skills because maybe they haven't had the experience at home or maybe genetically they're predisposed not to develop these these skills in their everyday life. And so reframing our our way of looking at young people who have these challenges, I think is really, really important. And once we do that and see them for the potential that they have, that can be such a powerful eye opener. And then in terms of teachers for ourselves, I think we have to remember that what we talked about earlier about our executive functions only work optimally when we are well rested, when we have eaten well, when we've done things that are restorative for us and looked after ourselves. And so as teachers who probably by definition, because we've been successful in life and we are able to put together a lesson plan and and keep time and, and, and meet our report deadlines, even though it might be horrible that we have to do them, but all of these things, we have got quite strong executive functions. Even though we have strong executive functions, we can have executive function bad days. Mm. And we can have those days where it all goes wrong. You know, you oversleep your alarm um, and then you leave your car keys on the hall table and the door closes on you. And, you know, all of these kind of events that happen, it's not because fate is against us. It's because our brains are hardwired. If we're tired, if we're stressed, to not use that part of our brain that we need to remember our keys and to, you know, not lock ourselves out of the house, you know, our working memory, our cognitive flexibility, our response inhibition. And so 
just being kind to ourselves and looking after our mental health and well-being is the biggest gift that we can give ourselves in terms of being able to stop that kind of vicious spiral down of having uh, challenges with our executive functions because we're tired, hungry, et cetera, um, and then ha- experiencing more and more and more and, and having that kind of vicious spiral down. So looking after ourselves is really key, but also modeling that to our children that are in our classrooms every day and saying, I didn't sleep well last night because I've got a two-year-old at home and she was up because she had a sore tummy. And I'm so I'm feeling tired today. So my working memory is going to be really impaired. So I'm going to need you guys to help me out and remember what activity we're doing today or what we planned or just modeling that this is okay. It's part of being a human being will free up everyone within that class to feel that it's okay too to have these challenges and to be more self-aware and to develop the skills they need to overcome those challenges in the moment. That's a lovely example. And, and that transparency of, of sharing how you're feeling as a teacher uh, is a really beautiful way to open up to your class. I love that. And how do we use our executive function as a key to our self-regulation? Well, our executive functions are the key to our self-regulation. They are the part of our brain that helps us to self-regulate. And I often use Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain, and maybe we can put a link to that in the show notes. Um, But it's a really powerful model that you use um, where the the arm is a brainstem and then you fold your thumb over and that's the amygdala. And then you have your executive functions kind of sitting over the top of that. And the executive functions are regulating the amygdala, the more fight or flight part of our brain. And so that's really kind of the neuroscience of what's going on. So if we can, we can understand that ourselves as educators, what's going on in terms of the neuroscience, we can also teach that to young people as well, because it's a really simple hand model. And what we say is when our executive functions are disconnected, they neurologically, obviously not physically, we don't flip our lids, they don't kind of disconnect, but neurologically, they do disconnect from that amygdala fight or flight part of our brain. And they're not regulating our emotions. And so that's when we have the red mist comes down, we lash out verbally at people, hopefully not physically, but maybe some of our students do. And and so really helping them to understand what's going on for them. And then that moment is really important because if they can self-reflect and and understand, okay, so this is, I had that response, not because I'm a bad person, but because my fight or flight part of my brain, my amygdala was taking over my executive functions, weren't doing the job they were doing. Then we can help them to understand the brain science and ourselves to understand the brain science. Then we can also understand that we can't in that moment, it's very difficult to try and reason with a child or to try and reason with a colleague if they are emotionally triggered. And so a lot of the work that we do is helping people to understand that in that moment of emotional dysregulation, that it's not, that's not the moment to start um, disciplining a child for shaming them or punishing them um, for what's going on. And the same with, with our, with ourselves, you know, if we're having a dispute with a, with a colleague or, or something's going on and we're feeling dysregulated, it's important to have a pause to take time to use our self-regulation techniques that we have, which might be breathing or mindfulness techniques or looking around and and sensing different things with our different senses. Whatever the strategies are that we have in our strategy bank for that self-regulation, using those to come back online and helping our students to do that, that too. And if we can model that to our students and say, oh gosh, that something you just said really triggered me then, but I'm going to just take a deep breath 
and I'm just going to just going to sit with it for a second and then we're going to just talk about that because that is is really reflecting that humanity back to the children and saying okay so my teacher also has these moments but because they have developed their executive functions because they have these strategies that they use they don't lash out and and um, say something inappropriate to to the child they they recognize it and they can preempt it coming so I hope that kind of makes some sense in terms of how we can use that language about executive functions to help us and our students to understand self-regulation. Yeah, absolutely. And and in, in some of the work that I do, we use biofeedback technology. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, it just means literally seeing what's happening inside the body. So we clip a mm. sensor onto a, a participant's ear or coachee and we can see exactly what's happening in the heart, in the autonomic nervous system. And we can see, and it often it often really shocks people, especially adults, especially senior leaders, to see, oh, my gosh, stress is actually something that's physically happening inside my body. And when somebody is stressed and experiencing this dysregulation, the heart rhythm is very chaotic. It looks like kind of an earthquake tracer. It's very chaotic. And that sends a very specific signal to the amygdalas which says there's a threat of some kind. And so it takes a huge amount of glucose and oxygen and blood to, to use those functions. And it takes that away from the frontal cortex. But when we, set, when we regulate with our breath and take those moments of pause, as you say, it creates an extremely different, very coherent heart rhythm. And that sends a signal to the brain to say, oh, right, we're safe everything's all right, fellas, we can go back to work. And it puts the executive function back online. And it's and we can do that so fast. So we have the language for that. You know, when a child or when somebody, anybody's upset, we say, come on, take a breath, it's all right. And so we know how to soothe ourselves and others. But when you actually see this as like a tracer, when you can see the, the, the heart rhythm in response to this, it's really quite amazing to see it so I'd really urge people when when you're feeling dysregulated and emotionally um, upset or over overwhelmed then by doing some regular rhythmic breathing uh, deep diaphragm breathing just slow down regulate your breathing that really does very quickly just within a matter of minutes help regulate self-regulate and get your executive function back online no, it, that is such a powerful thing. And I'd love to try that with some of our um, coaches as well, because I think, you know, you know, you feel it in your body, don't you? But yes. you have to be quite in tune to your body to do that. Whereas if you've got a, a monitor showing you this, you know, you can't argue with that. And, and so the power of that message is, is so important because we are we are part of our emotions. We cannot separate ourselves from our emotions. And if we deny that link, then we are taking away part of ourselves. And and I feel like education in the past, because it was, you know, it was dreamt up in the first instance in the Victorian era when, you know, emotions were not something you talked about at all. It doesn't, it's not set up necessarily to have these opportunities where we talk about those real human parts of, of being who we are, which are our emotional regulation and how we um, how we maintain our thoughts, patterns and, and negative self-talk and all of these things that are just such important tools in our well-being as teachers and as students as well. 
Exactly. And as we learn to self-regulate, just to take a, a kind of loop back to what you said about modeling this for students then, as we learn to self-regulate ourselves, and and I don't mean in any way just to pretend they're not happening and to take a few deep breaths and everything will be all right. It's really that self-awareness and self-acknowledgement of what you're you're feeling and going through. But when we actually turn our attention to that, then we can move through those emotions, especially difficult emotions or painful emotions that we feel them in our bodies as a tightness or as a heat or as a pain, just being with them with kindness to ourselves and compassion. And they move through and we learn from them and they, you know, they flow through us rather than getting stuck in our clenched jaw or <laughs> locked up neck muscles. We can just move through and flow with them much more freely. Yes. Absolutely. They don't have to control us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's such a, such a powerful, powerful message for people to hear. And if we are doing it as teachers, yeah. then we can model that to young people and they see that as normal yeah. and they don't see, you know, they don't see someone in front of them that's always seems to be in control of their emotions, then then they can develop those skills too by that through that modeling. Um, and so talking about when you're doing it, it's hard. And the first time I did it in front of um, my colleagues, it was really difficult. It felt difficult, but people loved it. They're like, this is so amazing. You're modeling this. This happens to you too, because often, you know, um, as a leader, you can become quite, you seem quite stoic, you know, you feel like you have to, but no, actually the vulnerability of talking about our emotions, about talking, modeling what we're going through is so, it builds such a strong connection with those in our environment, the, whether it's at school or home or, or whatever, that really kind of forges those relationships and, and, and relationships, as we know, are the foundation of teaching. And that's why computers can't do teaching. It has to be human beings is because that connection, that relationship is so powerful. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Victoria, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to just loop right back to the very first thing you said about raising children in Uganda and what that's teaching them about their own executive function. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, yes. So I don't think it's necessarily the, the environment per se completely, but the approach that we are able to have here, because we're not constrained by a particular um, education system, we um, we have a homeschool set up with four other families uh, where we have uh, the children that's a very emotionally literate environment. Um, and so that's their kind of schooling environment. But just at home, the things that I do to help boost the executive functioning of my children, and I have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old, and, and I'm even working with a two-year-old on, on her executive functions in, in, a, in a roundabout way, but it's about giving them agency and independence in their own lives. So my nine-year-old daughter can cook an entire roast dinner all by herself. Um, and she can do all the timings and all the preparation and all of that because she, over the years, we have taught her how to, to do that. My five-year-old can pack a bag for a sleepover by herself. She knows what needs to go in there. And she's very aware of, of what she, her responsibilities um, for that. And, and those small pieces of autonomy that we gift to our young people are so powerful in terms of them developing these executive functions at a young age. And so, yes, I think probably because of the environment that we have here, because we do do a lot of sleepovers and it's okay for my nine-year-old to cook a roast dinner, you know, that's kind of acceptable. It is, it's, it's a bit different to, to what you might expect in the UK, but I just think it's giving these opportunities for autonomy. That's the, the key um, to developing strong executive functions in children. 
Yeah. And we can most certainly do that in the UK. My my daughter is a young woman now, but I remember when she was small, exactly those kinds of things, how to take personal responsibility and, and take some, there's a, that's how they grow self-esteem as well, like to, to take some pride in what they can do and take care of themselves and be thoughtful and, and, and able and capable. So, yeah, that's amazing. Lovely. And my final question is you have an event coming up on June the 22nd called the Forum for the Future of Education. Will you tell us about that event? Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Um, Yes, so really the event has come off the back of uh, a number of years um, of talking with head teachers and other education professionals about change in education and us really kind of thinking ah, you know the time isn't right there isn't the there isn't the momentum within the general profession within the public for change yet and and just talking about it and thinking okay we'll, we'll know when it's right we'll know because we've got our finger on the pulse of what's going on and during covid we were reflecting you know this doesn't you know it doesn't feel right are you getting a sense of people getting frustrated yes i am but don't feel like it's the right time now as well because teachers are massively overstretched with the having to learn a completely new skill set with the homeschooling and the the zoom and um, teaching and all of that but since teachers have been back in the classroom we feel that there has been a real moment of reflection amongst the teaching profession amongst parents and amongst students who are saying this system isn't right for us anymore This system is not set up to help us to grow in the way and develop in the way that we need to. Uh, And actually, we need change. And and this groundswell of change is something we've sensed. But we didn't want to just be, oh, well, we think this is a thing and, you know, maybe do a press release out to the newspapers and say, well, we think this is what's happening. We wanted to to harness that frustration that we sense and and really kind of capture that in an event. Um, and we wanted that event to be an event where people had a chance to connect with other people who think in a similar way to them, to discuss how they feel, because we're, we're very emotionally literate in our work and we think it's really important that we, we harness our emotions, to talk about how they feel about education, and then to think about what we can do in the future that would be different and how how wonderful that could be and and ideas that people have so really to to harness the ideas that people have and so this event that we're putting on isn't a normal conference and there's not like a lineup of a whole load of of experts in their field who are going to tell us what they think about what education should be but in fact it's a forum where we're going to have groups of six talking about the future of education about their feelings about the current system And we're going to record that and we're going to um, have some researchers analyze the results of that, pick out key themes, key ideas, and put together a research paper about the general consensus of what's going on in key stakeholders' um, minds at the moment uh, and their opinions. Um, So this is all happening on the 22nd of June. Um, We welcome anyone who wants to get involved. This is for for everyone who wants to have a voice in the future of education. We are working with schools um, to do this. So school tickets are for four delegates. So there's a parent, a student, um, a teacher and an employer, because we think employers are key stakeholders in this because they have to provide the employment for uh, future generations. Um, But also we have individual tickets as well. So for for professionals like yourself and I who don't work within a school, then they could come along uh, and voice your opinions within a peer group of other professionals who are working within education um, to talk about that. 
Um, and we do have to charge um, for this event. And that's because the amount of money that it takes behind the scenes to put this event on is huge because you can imagine analyzing all of those breakout rooms, working out what people are saying is really important to us. We didn't want to just do a tick box kind of, you know, survey event because that would have been much cheaper. We really wanted to get into the depth of what people are saying, the emotions that they have about this. So that's the reason we have to, to charge the ticket. So a school ticket's 80 pounds and an individual ticket is 25 pounds. Um, so I really hope that people will sign up to come along to this event. It's a real chance to have your voice heard about the future of education. And I'm absolutely convinced that together we can make lasting change happen within the education system. I completely agree. And I think it will take nothing less really to come together because I agree with you that the, there's a real rumbling of, of discontent and how do we harness that? And, and what are your plans? I love the idea of, of really properly researching it and producing an evaluative piece. Um, what do you plan to do with that piece of research? So the plan is to um, hopefully to publish their piece of research. So we hope that um, an education journal uh, or the like would, would take that on. Um, and we'll be working with university researchers to make that happen. But also we hope that there will be some nuggets of information within that that can be disseminated to um, the press, to action groups and to the government so that they can really take take stock of what people have to say. And we believe the number of voices coming together at this event, and we've got hundreds of, of educators and, and schools signing up for this, that that will add weight to the message behind it, because together we have a much stronger voice than just one person on their own talking about change. Amazing. Amazing. So that's the Forum for the Future of Education on June the 22nd. And all of this will be in the show notes so people can get tickets. We'll put the links in there. So Good luck with that. I'll definitely be joining you and having my voice heard. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this opportunity. No, it's a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Victoria Bagnell. You can connect with Victoria on Twitter at ConInMind, and that's C-O-N-N-I-N Mind. All of this, again, will be in the show notes. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Connections in Mind, and on LinkedIn, it's Connections hyphen in hyphen mind hyphen limited <laughs> and the website is connectionsinmind.co.uk victoria thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today it's my pleasure thank you thanks so much for listening now check out our website pursuitwellbeing.com if you enjoyed the podcast please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and if you feel inspired please rate and review it and share it with your friends I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.